Except for when you're a pastor at Foundation Church. It's the easiest thing in the world, so thank you for being so awesome. Uh, I have the privilege of preaching on the Word of God today, and I have been just loving the series that we're in. We're in Matthew, and so if you want to begin by turning to Matthew chapter 5, it'll be on the screen. And actually, I'm going to have you stand up with me again. A lot of standing and sitting. I'm sorry about this, but uh, it's just what we do. Now, I want to just, real quick, I want to explain the process. So, I am going to read the section of Scripture that we are going to study today. And then, at the end of it, I am going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you all are going to say, say thanks, thanks be to God. Yes, we're getting better every single week. I love this. I know this is new and fresh for us. And so, I'm excited about that. But it's the way that we honor God and His word. So if you'll follow along, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 um, through 12. It says this, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Oh, you guys are amazing. Okay, grab your seats. A few weeks ago, we began a study on the Gospel of Matthew. And that's where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. And in this study, there was a particular framework that we introduced as a team uh, that we're using to study or to view the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is very rich. Actually, time out. I forgot something that is very important to me. And so I want you guys to come on up here really quickly. I even wrote at the top of my notes and I was so overwhelmed by your generosity that I forgot. So Mike and Allie, will you come up here? Um, this is, this, this, this is how big of a deal this is to me. I stopped in the middle of my sermon. Not the middle. Let's be honest. That wasn't even close to the middle. You guys are in for a treat today. But here's the deal. Micah um, and Allie have made the decision for Micah to join. Yeah, you guys can come on up when we pray. We'll have you guys up here as well. Uh, Micah is going to be joining the military. He's actually enlisting this week. Uh, officially on Tuesday, or are you swearing on Wednesday? Swearing on Wednesday, okay, so he will be shipping off, yes, that's a great, awesome thing, a big deal, he's going to be in the army, right, I'm going to make sure I got that right, <laughs> and he's going to be shipping off for eight months of boot camp, and then after that, Ali and he will be moving to Tacoma, 
where he will spend a year there in training as a combat medic, and then he'll serve a few more years after that. So uh, we are losing Micah um, for the foreseeable future. Yes, very sad. Um, but I like to consider these things what uh, I've heard other uh, wiser, older pastors say they're gospel goodbyes, right? These are things that happen, um, and the gospel, the grace of Jesus covers the sadness of these moments when we say goodbye to somebody who we love. And so it's going to be for a really great opportunity and a really um, awesome experience. And I know it's not going to be super easy for either of you to be apart. Certainly Bronson's going to miss you. Bronson, we just dedicated a few, uh, a little while ago if you were here. He's the little psychopath for you. Cute as all get out. Don't worry, Grandma, I got you. Um, yeah, so we wanted to take a moment and just pray. And so, like I said, it's such a big deal to me that I just thought, no, we need to stop and do this right now. Um, we had planned to do that. So I'm going to pray a blessing. If you could agree with me that um, the blessing of God would be upon Micah as he leaves and Allie while she's here for the next eight months. Her church family is going to rally around and help care for her, uh, which includes all of you. And so that's going to be a great opportunity to bless their family through that. And then eventually when she leaves, uh, we're going to, you know, trap her so she can't leave. But no, we really not that. So, uh, yeah. But we want to just pray for you and uh, your family. So, will you agree with me as we pray? God, we, we have such a beautiful family. And this church is made up of incredible families. Mike and Allie being one of those families, God. So, God, I pray for both of them, for Bronson, for their extended family, Micah and Annette and all the sisters and brothers that are involved in this. God, I just pray for safety over Micah, for peace um, over both of them as he departs for the next eight months, for training and for the things that you've called him into. God, I pray that you would help him to lead well, to serve well, to learn the things he needs to learn to do his job well. God, for Allie, as she sends her husband um, into this next season of profession. God, that you would bless her, that you would bless Bronson, that you would give them lots of peace. God, that the connectedness in their marriage would stay strong as they're apart, that they would communicate and that they would pray. God, that you would be that go-between in these times when it's going to be difficult. And God, may us as a church family also uh, be a blessing to this family. God, we just pray for this whole situation to be covered by your grace and your mercy. And God, that we may be able to celebrate something amazing down the road, God, as we, as, we, as we send Micah off and he will be missed. But God, let us be able to celebrate him and his achievements and celebrate their family and love them well. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 What's so funny about all of that is that I literally wrote it right here at the top of my notes, and I just skipped right over that, so thanks for being patient with us. Um, it's a big deal. Okay, so a few weeks ago, we began a study on Matthew, and we've been looking at Matthew for, um, and will be for a number of weeks, and we're looking at it through a particular framework, uh, and this is the particular framework that is um, important for us as we view and study and read this rich gospel. It's a bold statement, maybe, but I believe it's completely true. 
The only path to true human flourishing is to know and obey the teachings of Jesus. That's the framework. We are looking at the Gospel of Matthew to know and obey the teachings of Jesus. We are looking at it because we want to be a people who flourish. I want you to flourish. I want myself to flourish. And we believe that the only path to true human flourishing is to know and obey the teachings of Jesus. Now, this framework is actually a framework that Jesus himself established at multiple points throughout the gospel. It's recorded in all the gospels, but in this particular one, at least twice, Jesus gives us the invitation into this way of life. And so the first one uh, is actually the very end. This is how we started the series. I read to you the Great Commission. And I'm going to read it to you again. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It says this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20 it says, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we have this invitation that Jesus is giving to his disciples. Hey, go and make disciples, people who will continue to follow me in my ways. And I want you to teach them everything I have commanded. But this isn't the only place that we see Jesus give this type of invitation. He gives a similar one in Matthew chapter 7. And this verse is uh, a foundational verse for us here at Foundation Church. It's actually... Um, why we chose the name we did for this church because we believe that what Jesus is saying here is incredibly important for every Christ follower. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house and fell with a great crash. So the scenario was the same for those two people. The difference was, did they listen and obey to the commands of Jesus? So this foundation, this invitation that Jesus gives us into human flourishing is based upon us becoming his disciples. He's inviting us to follow him, to learn his commandments and to put them into practice. And there's these pillars that are upholding this framework that we're talking about, this lens through which we're viewing Matthew, this one of human flourishing. And it's based on listening and doing. Hear these, wor hear these words and put them into practice. Learn what to do for me and then go and do it. And that is how we are studying the Gospel of Matthew, learning what Jesus taught so that we can be a people who put it into practice. Now, back in week one, just a few weeks ago, I pointed out that Jesus' audience, when he preaches this sermon, had one primary philosophical quest in life. It's one that guided, that guided their entire approach, approach to life. The primary concern of their day was... How do I live a good life? Or in other words, what do I need to do so that I can flourish? What do I need to think? What do I need to arrange my 
lifelike so that I can flourish? This was the main question that people were asking, and it was the big idea guiding the teachings of every major philosopher, every major philosophy of that day. Now, I would contend that our life, our way is no different, that each of us are also on a quest to figure out how to live our best life possible. Now, I said this before, I want to flourish. I want my family to flourish. I want all of us here to flourish. And I'm guessing that you feel the same way, right? You want your friends, you want your family, you want the people you love to flourish. Now, the way that the people of Jesus' day lived in order to survive was definitely very different than ours, but the fundamental philosophical pursuit of humanity remains the same. It's timeless in that sense. And Jesus understood this, and of course he did, because he was God in the flesh, right? He knew it. And so therefore, when Jesus taught, he was speaking to his audience in that moment, but he was also speaking to future generations future disciples, those of us who are sitting here today. And that's really the genius of Jesus, isn't it? It's the mark of a great teacher, Jesus teaching timeless principles delivered in a timely illustration on topics that matter to us, right? He wasn't just theorizing about things that are not important. He's talking about the most important things in our life. But here's the kicker. The teachings of Jesus were so counterformational to the popular culture of his day. That's what stands out about Jesus' teaching. Things like, when we think money will make us happy, Jesus tells the rich man to go and sell everything and follow him. When we think that power will make us happy, Jesus tells his disciples that the Messiah the Savior, the God of the universe made into flesh, human form, is not here to be served, but to serve. And when we think that a focus on our personal success is the pathway to a happy life, Jesus says, no, 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 follow me, focus on me, and I will lead you to a full life. So Jesus' preaching and teaching revealed to the people of his day a pathway to a better version of themselves and to a version of life that he calls full, rich, robust. And that was the philosopher's purpose of the day, right? He was teaching this to get people's attention, but the thing is, is it went against the popular thought. It went against the grain of popular thought in his day. And it also does that to us today. Right, when you read the teachings of Jesus, you're like, some of those go, oh, that one hurts a little bit. <laughs> Jesus' teachings call us out of a self-dependence and into a dependence on God, into a dependence on a way of life that demands that we know God, that we <clears throat> learn his commands and that we follow his way of life. I love this passage in John 12, verses 47 through 50. Jesus is talking about um, how these commands have come from his father. These aren't just his teachings, although they are, but they've been taught before and they've come from a way of life that's already existed. So it says this, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, 
I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's Jesus' primary motive, to save the world, not to judge it. But then he says, but there is a judge. For the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I have spoken, will condemn them at that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So Jesus' reminder in John is that he's here to save the world, not to judge it. However, when people reject these teachings, when they reject him, they will be judged by the Father. But the Father, who is so gracious and so loving, who commands us through Jesus, sent Jesus so that we may have eternal life. And so again, the only pathway to true human flourishing is to know and obey the teachings of Jesus. But I don't want you to be confused by this fact. The only pathway to eternal life is through salvation in Jesus by his grace. This is not a works-based theology. Right? This is, we understand that we cannot produce our own salvation, that only Jesus can do that and did that through his grace, through his mercy on our behalf. But while we are here, there is a way of life that we can live if we choose to do so that is a better version than what the world is giving us. And so if you leave here with nothing else today, which I don't think will happen, but just in case you walked out right now, don't do it. <laughs> You heard the most important thing I have to say. Because I think that knowing that Jesus is the only path to salvation, not the way that we live. That he saves us despite our failures and despite our, you know, our faults and all the things that we can't control and can't control that go poorly. Jesus is not inviting us to a way of life that we can earn that salvation. But he is inviting us into a way of life where we can thrive, where we can flourish. And so all of that, which of course was my intro, leads us into our passage for today. It leads us into this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And so today, we do just that. We dive into the Sermon on the Mount. And it is a sermon which is the first of five major teaching blocks organized in the Gospel of Matthew. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, there's an intro and a conclusion. And in between those, there's kind of five major discourses. And Matthew intentionally organizes this into his gospel because he wants to parallel the first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses. And there's a reason why that's significant. At this point in history, when Jesus is teaching this sermon in this moment, Moses is the patriarch of the Jewish faith, right? Jesus is just a guy to them at this point. But Moses, their hero. And his highlight reel includes things like meeting God at the burning bush and confronting Pharaoh for the freedom of the Israelites and leading them out of captivity, receiving the Ten Commandments and delivering it, receiving the law that we now know as the Mosaic law or the law given to Moses and delivering it to his people. Pretty spectacular. There's a lot more there. But these things are a big deal. And so Moses is a celebrated figure in their tradition. Moses was as close to God 
as any human had been in Hebrew culture. Just think of the person that you're like, that person's holy. You picture the most holy person in your life. They do not compare to Moses. So that's why we see passages like the one we see in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 says this. It says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to the confidence and hope in which we glory. That scripture was written to a primarily Jewish audience and they had to write it because that's how big of a deal Moses was. The author's saying, we get it. Moses is a big deal, but Jesus is a bigger deal. And so Matthew, as he writes this gospel account, he's aware of these historical ties between Moses and his modern audience. And so he gives the reader, especially in this time, but in our time too, these signals. And the signal is the structure of the gospel and the way that it's laid out. Again, called the books of Moses, the first five books, Matthew organizes his account of Jesus' teachings into five major blocks as well, which is the first signal to the audience like, oh, this is important. Much like Moses, what Moses gave to us in commands, in God's law, Jesus is about to give us commands that are as important as we know, more important than what Moses brought. So that's the first signal. The second signal is this. It's actually found in the very first two lines of Matthew 5. It says, I'm going to read it to you again. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and, be, and he began to teach them. Okay, so where did Moses, little Bible trivia here, where did Moses go to receive the law of God? Most notably, the Ten Commandments. He went up a mountain, okay? And where did Jesus go? As we just read, as he's preparing to deliver this sermon, it says he went up on a mountain. Okay, now these signals are subtle to us as we're like, yeah, there's mountains everywhere. That's probably what they did. But to this audience, this is another significant tie between Jesus and Moses, which meant that Jesus was about to deliver not just a wise teaching, not just philosophically sound doctrine, but he's actually bringing the commands of God yeah. to the people. So that's signal number two. This is a big deal. The audience is starting to pick up on this as Jesus signals to them by going up onto the mountainside. But there's one more thing that's important for us to understand as we dive into the Beatitudes. Um, at the beginning of each Beatitude is the word blessed. Now. I had a little diatribe about how blessed has been overused and sort of, but I took all of that out. I don't want to waste your time with that. My cynicism was on display and that doesn't need to be. 
But the thing is, is we each have our idea of what the word blessed means. And we kind of have our own understanding of that. And it's likely that our current cultural application of the word falls short of what Jesus is saying in these powerful statements. And I want to show you why. So blessed, as it's recorded in the Greek of the New Testament, is the word makarios. And makarios is used in um, a way that scholars have titled a macarism. These phrases that Jesus is about to deliver is a statement on the makarios. Now, let me tell you what the makarios means. Dr. Jonathan Pennington, um, if you're a nerd like me, you'll appreciate his stuff. He's probably the foremost Mathean scholar of our day. He says this, he says, a macarism is a makarios statement that ascribes happiness and flourishing to a particular person or state. A macarism is a pronouncement based on observation that a certain way of being in the world produces human flourishing and felicity. And so what we see here is that the word blessed that Jesus is using is actually describing a state of flourishing. That a person who embodies the traits that we see in the Beatitudes, the ones that we read earlier, and the ones that we're going to study here in just a moment, that the person who embodies those things, that person is flourishing. That person is going to be happy. For example, this is what it would sound like if you read the first line with those ideas. Happy and flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if that doesn't go against our cultural grain, I don't know what does. But that's why we're here. That's why we're in this sermon, because it matters. Because knowing and obeying the teachings of Jesus is the only path to human flourishing. Okay, so now you have some tools to better understand how powerful these statements are. And I could have gone on and on, but I saved you from that. So let's dive in. The first phrase... Blessed are the poor, God bless you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit is rooted in the right understanding of our need from God. When you are poor in spirit, you have a right understanding, the right perspective of how much you need God. Having a humble heart, knowing that without God, we are spiritually empty. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You are weary. You are burdened. You are in the need of rest. And you come to God recognizing that you are poor in spirit. Feeling weak, you turn to God. That's how you will flourish. Now, that's counterformational to the idea that strength is found when we turn inward, right? That's sort of the narrative of the day. Be strong. Turn to yourself. Find your inner strength. But this is saying that the poor in spirit who turn to God will find their strength and theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. That is really good news. That is such good news for those of us who are just feeling a little downtrodden in the moment, right? The whole world, when you're feeling up and ready to go and you're just kicking butt, like everything can go wrong. You're just like, whoa, whatever, I got this, right? But the reality is that most of the time, there's something in our world that reminds us of our need for God. So when we turn to God, 
Jesus is saying that's how we flourish. The second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Also a good news statement. When people are experiencing economic injustice or racial injustice or social injustice or personal tragedy or internal sorrow, God hears you. He hears the mourning of his people. In Exodus 3, Moses is talking with God at the burning bush and he says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. But it's not just being heard. God heard their suffering. He heard their cries. It's about being comforted. God uses the people in his church, the people who follow him, to comfort those who mourn. That's why community is so important in a world that's calling us into individualism, rampant individualism, like you be you, you do your thing, you say your truth, you live your truth, blah, 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 blah. What Jesus is saying is, no, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, they will be comforted. And how he does that is through his relationship with you and through the people that he's called around you. When you mourn, you will be comforted. Now, number three, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meek is an interesting term, is it not? It's not something that I use a lot. I'm not walking around being like, uh, Pastor Jessica is real meek today. <laughs> right? Like that, you, you're like, what? Here's meekness defined. And this is a definition by Aristotle. It is strength under control. So being poor in spirit is about recognizing our weakness, but we also have strength. And how you use your strength is very important in the kingdom of heaven. Let's say, for example, that you're a very convincing person. You're excellent with words, you're believable, and you use your strength to gain every advantage for yourself, regardless of how much it tears down someone else. Right? Conversely, though, that's not a really good way to use it. Conversely, you carry the same strength into a space where you can actually fight for somebody else who can't fight for themselves on their behalf, and you're very convincing, and you're very good with words, and you use that to actually build up the kingdom of heaven. The strength is the same, right? But how we use it. And the way that we control it is by being meek, strength under control. So Jesus is saying, hey, be meek, because if you are, you will inherit the earth. I'm just hoping for a little bit of cash. <laughs> but the earth sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> when you align your strength with God's plans for your life, you advance the kingdom of heaven. You push out the darkness. When you have strength under control, you inherit the earth, and that is meekness. Okay, number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, righteousness at its core is God's imputed right standing. So, how does that manifest itself right now? Well, eventually, you will be made whole again. And as I age, that feels amazing or sounds amazing because my body is breaking down day by day. And I can't wait to be made whole. 
but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, it says that when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will be filled. And how we do that is that we know Jesus. We obey his commands. This isn't necessarily about getting external action correct, although it's really awesome when we get it right. Right? But it's talking even more so about our internal motives, ultimately our desire to participate in the kingdom of heaven, to participate in the restoration, to desire, to hunger, to thirst for righteousness, for God's imputed right standing. Now, I will say this. One of the things that we've talked about through this series is that we are doing deep work in community over a long period of time, right? Deep work in community over a long period of time. This is very much deep work, right? Understanding the imputed righteousness of God is going to take a lot of work, but that's okay. It's a process. And it is, it's deep work and we do it in community and we do it over a long period of time. And then it says, when we hunger and thirst for that, we will be filled. This isn't you just wanting it and God being like, eh, maybe. If you're good, I'll give it to you. If you're nice, if you go do that thing, if you sign up for a community group, maybe I'll fill you up. <laughs> Pastor Jessica might think that, but. But no, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be Now, those first four Beatitudes are actually how we relate to God and our virtue. But Jesus changes the tone of the sermon and starts to now talk about how we interact with other people, like relationship to relationship here on earth. So he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, mercy is compassion extended to the less fortunate as an act of worship to God. Now, a Christian is someone who sees the less fortunate and extends compassion to this person despite the reason for their poor fortune. And then it says, a person who does that, a person who is merciful, who forgives when the forgiveness is maybe not deserved, who serves when the person doesn't necessarily deserve to be served, right? To be generous with despite the reason for the need, that when we are merciful, we too will be shown mercy. And I don't know about you, but I need lots of mercy. And so I too want to be a merciful person. Then he goes on to say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Here we see right motives, right emotions, right thoughts, right judgment in our attitudes towards others. And if you're real with yourself, you know how hard that is. But it says, blessed are the pure in heart, learning how to have the right emotions, learning how to pursue the thoughts that God wants us to have, learning how to have the type of attitude that leads us into a better version of thought and a better version of action. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7 says this, do not be anxious about anything, Okay, God. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We live in a day 
filled with anxiety, anger, violence. But it says that the people of Jesus will be filled with peace and that it will guard their hearts, that it will guard their minds. And I will say this, people take notice of peacemakers. They really do. When you see a peacemaker doing their thing, you notice it. They bring people together. When there's division, they bring unity. When there's anger, they bring peace. The peacemakers, Jeremiah 29, 7 says this. This is a directive to the people of Israel when they are in captivity in a country that they do not own, that they are not there by their own volition. God gives them this command. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God is telling them, I know that you're not here by your own design, but still pray for it. Pray for the peace of this city. And so blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The next one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've all been spoken poorly of at some point. I, I'm actually not sure that is true about Jessica, but I've certain everyone else. I know I have. She's just too nice. I mean, if someone says, if you, if any of you come to me with something, no, I'm just kidding. We've all been spoken poorly of at some point. And a majority of the time, we at least deserve it a little bit, right? I mean, we're honest with ourselves. People are excellent. I am excellent. When I say people, I'm starting with me, are excellent at justifying their actions, right? Like we're like, I, I'm really good at that actually. So we feel righteous in the defense of them. But here's the thing. Here's what it's saying. If you are persecuted for a truly righteous thing, for a righteous motive, for a righteous action, for a thing that you did that is truly righteous, you will not need to justify yourself. Flourishing, happy is the person who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. So don't sweat it. Don't let the thing bother you. Let God do what God has promised because he has said, yours will be the kingdom of heaven. And if it's not righteous, apologize, okay? And then finally we come to the point where it says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now again, here we have another opportunity to know that God is going to work out in the end what we feel like we have been served unjustly or unfairly. But Jesus is saying, hey, you're gonna flourish. You're gonna be happy. When you are persecuted falsely and people say evil things about you because of Jesus, it's okay. You're going to flourish. You're going to be happy. And so as we journey through this Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to cover over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be challenged by this content. These blessings, these macarisms, these challenges to live in a particular way, these are not necessarily easy things. However, they are indeed the pathway to true human flourishing. 
You're going to be challenged. I've been challenged. Like, you're here listening. I had to study it all a week ago. Ugh! I am not doing well at some of these. But that's a good thing. That's what I want. That's what I want for us. That's the reason why we have been so adamant about knowing and obeying the commands of Jesus. Because we believe in the end, it leads to the best version of your life. And this isn't some like fairy tale thing that we're just hoping that, you know, riches rain down on you and you're never going to get sick. It's none of that. You're going to experience all the pains in life and all the hurts and all the deficiencies. But Jesus has promised that we are going to flourish. That what we do in response to his commands when we obey them matters. It really, really matters. And it leads us to the better version of our life. And so as we study these teachings and as we study this sermon, we're going to quickly realize that Jesus is not preaching to uphold the rhythms and patterns of popular culture, but a counterculture, a different way of living that is really, really good for us. So an opening like the one we just worked through is in some ways a warning and in some ways an invitation. Here's how it's a warning. It's a warning to the person that, hey, what you're about to encounter are going to be teachings that are going to require the deep work. The deep work of God restoring you and weeding things out of your soul. But it's also an invitation. And much like a great invitation to a fun event or somewhere that I want to be, so much more than that is an invitation into a way of life that is going to change your soul. When you listen and obey, it says that you are going to flourish, that you are going to receive the full life. And so we live in this world that's full of anxiety and division and loneliness and anger and greed and addictions. And Jesus is offering a different alternative. Jesus is inviting his audience into a counter-formational way of life. Jesus is inviting us into a counter-formational way of life. A way of life that is marked by people who are poor in spirit, able to mourn, meek, filled with righteousness, pure in heart, merciful, peacemaking, persecuted. That does not, off the top of my head, sound like a flourishing life. But when I read the words of Jesus and I trust and obey, that if I obey and put into practice his commands, I've seen that fruit in my life. And I believe each one of you probably has as well. And so may we be a people who know and obey the teachings of Jesus so that when the big moments come, whether they're good ones or hard ones, when the big moments come, we're ready. We're ready to respond in a way that is Christ-like. May we know the words and the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice. Okay, we're going to do communion. We're going to close our time together. In just a moment, we're going to sing a couple songs, but we felt it was appropriate to take this time and acknowledge the gift that Jesus has given us.
Jesus told his disciples on the first communion. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember what I have done for you. And in that moment, what he was about to do, which of course was to go pay for our sins on the cross, die a death that was meant for the worst type of people, only to three days later be risen again, having conquered our battle with sin. Now, it fleshes itself out us in us every single day, but the ultimate, the ultimate salvation happens through Jesus. Meaning no matter how hard it is for you to defeat the thing that is holding you back today, it is ultimately paid for by a loving and gracious Savior. And because of that, we take communion together. Now granted, these are just cheap renditions, a little wafer and some juice, but here's what's so great about communion is it is a tactile thing that you can taste, see, touch, smell. And that tactile reminder is a reminder of that grace. As you receive the wafer and as you drink the cup, you can recall the grace, the good news of Jesus. So I'm going to pray over these elements and then you can receive them at your own pace. And then after you're done, will you just stand and sing with us? God, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for these moments where you're calling us into a better way of life. And God, I know it's going to take the shaping and the molding of our soul. And so God, we stand here today. We sit here today saying, Jesus, please change me. May I know your commands and put them into practice. And God, as we remember you through the act of communion, as we celebrate the, the gift of grace, the gift of mercy, the, the gift of salvation, what you've done for us on the cross, so that we can live as you live. God, we do not take this lightly, but we also take it as celebration. We are so thankful for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You can receive the elements.